Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, that's on page 1837, and Pauline's going to be reading the Bible for us, the first 12 verses. Thanks, Pauline. Yes, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, and just a reminder, it's on page, page 1837. As for other matters, brothers and sisters... We instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God and that in this matter no one should should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life. Therefore anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being but God the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family through Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win respect, the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent on anyone. Thanks, Pauline. Uh, please keep your Bibles open to page 1837 as we look at this next chapter of 1 Thessalonians. And please remember there will be time for questions after the talk. Now tonight I'm going to give you a heads up. What we're looking at tonight, it's a in-your-face passage as we're going to be looking at some pretty sensitive stuff. And it's going to feel like I'm encroaching on your personal space, so please be aware of that. And it's because of that we need, God, we need God's help more than ever as we look at this uh, passage tonight. So will you please join me as I pray. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word, the Bible, and we pray that your spirit will do the incredible work in our hearts. That you'll change us to be people who live in a way that's pleasing to you. That you'll change us to be people who live in a way that's best for us and the world around us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, especially in the last week, uh, the last year or so, it seems that there is an increasing divide in our society today of what the church thinks and what the world thinks. And I think with the whole marriage debate, the postal vote two years ago, it's been increasingly said that the church has become more and more out of touch with its view on sexuality. And as Christians we can really feel that tension. But the fact is, Christianity has always been countercultural when it comes to matters of sexuality. 
And we don't need to be apologetic about this. It's not as if suddenly we've hit the 21st century and Christians are suddenly saying something different from the rest of culture. Right from the start, from the words of Paul here in 1 Thessalonians 4, the message is, if you're a Christian, you're called to be different. Different from the Greek culture back in Thessalonica. Different from the Australian culture here in Sydney. And that's going to work itself out in different actions. And as verse 1 says, it's going to be a life pleasing to Christ. But it's not just a life pleasing to Christ. It's actually the way that works best in our world. The way that's most fulfilling. The way that has no regrets. And tonight we're going to be looking at two areas of how we're to be different. And that's with regards to sex in regards to work. Uh, now, firstly, uh, a bit of background about the city of Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonica is a port city. Uh, is, and during the time of port, it was a city uh, where the Christians were the minority and that the culture, culture was very promiscuous. And that's the thing. We're people who live in Sydney, which is a port city that has a culture that is very promiscuous. However, it can be argued that the standards in Thessalonica is actually much worse than what we see here in Sydney. Because in Thessalonica, a man was allowed to have a mistress, a concubine, and a wife. Uh, A mistress for pleasure. A concubine for day-to-day bodily needs. And a wife produce legitimate children and managing the household. But while the men were allowed to do that, the wife wasn't. So it was a really big double standard. But we've read how Paul has introduced the Thessalonians to Jesus. And as the gospel has gripped the Thessalonians, a change has started, especially with the guys but more change is needed. And what Paul says next goes totally against the culture back in the day. It also goes against our culture as well. So do you notice what Paul is calling the Thessalonians to do in verse 3? He tells them that God's will for them is to be sanctified, to be holy, That's what the word means, to be set apart, to be distinct from the world. And the reason they're to be sanctified, the reason they're to be distinct, is because they are now owned by God. Now to give you an idea what it means to be sanctified, let me tell you, our family next Sunday is going to acquire a cat. That's the cat we're going to have, her, her name's going to be Bowie, and our cat will have a distinct plate for its food. We've got that ready. Now the plate has been sanctified. It's been set apart for a special purpose because it has a new owner. It it wouldn't be right if we used that plate like how we use all the other plates in serving food to other guests. No, no, because of its new owner, it's to be different from the rest. And like that plate... We as God's people, we're set apart 
And we're to be different from the world. And one way we're to do that is to avoid sexual immorality. Because that's a key way for us to be distinct from the world. And now the Greek word for sexual immorality is the word porneia. And it's the word that we get the word pornography from. And it's the broad term that covers any form of sexual activity outside the confines of a committed relationship of heterosexual marriage. So what is porneia? Well, it's a guy and girl having sex before they're married. It's having sex with someone who's married to someone else. It's having multiple partners. It's homosexual sex. That's porneia. But porneia is also sending flirty text messages or sexting. It's the sexual innuendo in the conversation at the office. It's looking at porn on the net. That's porneia as well. And holiness is avoiding porneia. It's avoiding sexual immorality. Now, the thing about sexual immorality is it destroys the great gift of sex that God has given us. It it distorts it to be something he didn't intend. You see, the foundations of sex is actually found in the book of Genesis. In the Garden of Eden, when God created Adam and Eve uh, together. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it describes Adam and Eve as united to each other, becoming one flesh. And you see that in the text there. And it's in this context of heterosexual marriage where sex was to be part of that one flesh union. You see, sex is the, the physical, the emotional, the psychological and the spiritual bond between a man and a woman where they give themselves completely to that other person where they can put their total trust and allegiance and all that they are to that one person knowing that the other person will do exactly the same thing back. And in this context, that helps us understand what Paul means in verse 4 of how we can be holy when having sex, which is by controlling our body in a way that's honourable to the other person, as opposed to passionate lust. You see, there's a difference between holy sex and lustful sex, in that holy sex is other person centered whereas lustful sex is all about being selfish and serving yourself again it's that same theme that we've been seeing throughout this letter to the Thessalonians that as Christians we're to be loving towards others we're to be other people centered and that applies to all areas of life including the bedroom. And that's the key to great sex, that as you look to please each other, then the experience for both of you will be jointly heightened. And that's the best way to enjoy sex, because that's how God intended sex to be had. 
You see, God intended sex to be great, not second rate. Now, the thing is, if we think about the culture back then and we think that was sex crazy, what's well, nothing compared to our own culture here in the inner West? Because our society has changed sex to be something that's intrinsically linked to our identity. You see, someone, some, sometimes people get involved in a sexual relationship in the hope of finding acceptance or love or friendship that they feel they're missing in their life. And people can put so much hope, so much emphasis on sex to the point that they, they think that in order to be infinitely happy, they need to have sex and need to get it right. But when you put sex on such a pedestal, if you make sex something that it isn't, if you make sex your idol, then you're going to be bitterly disappointed. Because sex without the framework of real commitment in marriage, it just won't hit the mark. And the thing is, even if you give yourself completely to this person, if, if you don't have that marriage relationship based on other person-centeredness, then you won't have that assurance that they'll do the same thing back. And in the back of your mind, you know that you're only being accepted by this person because of what you do, not because of who you are. And you risk feeling used and not loved. Doing things God's way, having sex God's way, is designed to always be the best way. Now Paul goes on to give the Thessalonians and us the reason why we're to live God's way. And at the end of the day, it's because of God. I've seen already that it's God's will for uh, people to enjoy sex in the context of marriage. But the other side of it is, God will punish those who commit sexual sins. Now, did you notice how strong the language Paul uses in the second part of verse 6? Now, please have a look at verse 6 with me. He says this, The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. Now, I have to say this next bit really clearly but gently. There is a here and now punishment for sexual sin. And there is a there and then punishment for sexual sin. Uh, the here and now punishment is that many people are abused, used, or confused. Uh, it's the regrets. It's the lives screwed up. It's the living with shame. Uh, we've all heard stories, those who we know personally or what we hear in the news. Sexual sin does real damage to people involved and everyone else that's connected to them. If it's marriages apart, 
It rips kids away from their parents. It affects family and friends. That's the here and now punishment and collateral of sexual sin. But there's a there and then punishment as well. That if you keep going against your, in your rebellion against God, if you keep going in that direction, well, the Bible says you will not go to heaven. Uh, please look at what Paul says to another church, the church of Corinth, on this same topic. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Please grab this clearly. Those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the second thing that we need to be clear on is that the the thief is just as bad as the adulterer. That the one who steals from the tax man is just as bad as the one who has sex with the milkman. But then look at verse 11. Let me show you what verse 11 says in the orange. And that is what some of you were. Uh, Here's the thing. Just like the church in Corinth. Well, there's very likely someone here who's committed sexual sins. Just like there's someone, most likely, who's here, who's stolen things, who's lied, slandered, or had issues with alcohol. We're not a perfect bunch here. But even though that's the case, the next verse, verse 12, has some fantastic news for us. And please look at the next word of the next verse. It's a beautiful three-letter word. Let me show you. Here's the next verse, verse 12. It says, But, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see what this verse is saying? There is a there and then punishment. But there's a way out by coming to Jesus. Where we recognize that we've done the wrong thing. Where we recognize that we don't deserve to inherit the kingdom of God. The way out is coming to Jesus and asking for his forgiveness. And that is what the Bible calls grace. Through Jesus dying on the cross, God offers mercy, forgiveness, a clean slate, even from the sort of sexual guilt that can plague you year after year. And so, if you ever feel that your sin is unforgivable, that it's too big for God to extend His grace over, then you need to look at the cross again. Hear him say it again, where Jesus says, It is finished. 
Your sin has been dealt with if you come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. And if you're here and you really want to talk to someone about all of this further, please make sure you talk to either myself or Carmen after the gathering tonight. Now, being other person-centered doesn't just apply to how we see sex. It also affects how we see our work. And in the context of verse 10, uh, where Paul urges the Thessalonians to grow in their love for each other more and more, well, Paul has a few things to say about work. And on the face of what we're about to read, it may seem a little strange. Paul says three things. Uh, Please look at verse 11 with me. He says this. He says... Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands. Now that doesn't sound very ambitious, does it? You think if something to be ambitious about would be to either succeed in life or change the world, but to lead a quiet life? Well, let me fill you in a little bit of context here with the Thessalonians. Uh, The literature that we have uh, from the time tells us that the Thessalonians had a tendency to cause problems in the public sphere. And what they would do, they would just love spending their time discussing philosophical ideas in order to grab the public attention and the political power that would come with that. But it just got to the point where two things happened. Firstly, it ended up not helping anyone in society. And secondly... They were doing it at the expense of neglecting their own normal responsibilities like providing for themselves and they ended up sponging off other people. And so Paul is encouraging them to avoid all that unnecessary involvement that comes with the public arena. But instead, to lead a quiet life. A life that's focused on what God wants them to focus on. So that's what the quiet bit means. And and when we see that next bit in the verse that says, mind your own business, but when we read that, it would be just very easy for us to take those words and think, we can just keep to ourselves and not be involved in the lives of others. And if we see someone struggling, well, these words, it might just make it just easy for us to just turn our head away. And just be concerned what's happening in our own patch. But all that will be inconsistent with what Paul's been saying throughout his letter. Where he's been talking about being loving, being other person centered. You see, to, to lead a quiet life is actually means to be wise and strategic with what you have in your life, with what you do in your life. So it's not, just, it's not so full of stuff so that you can have the capacity to love and serve others. And minding your own business, it means well, not being a busybody, not putting your nose where it doesn't belong. Well, you know there's a big difference between lovingly helping and, uh, and being helpfully involved in the lives of others and meddling in the lives of others. We all know what both of them look like. And we all know which one we prefer. Uh, Quickly, let me talk about the third phrase. Work with your hands. 
And that refers to not being idle, not being lazy, but being someone who uses their time to work. Now Paul will pick up this topic later on in chapter 5, where he'll address those people who just sit around and who are just wasting their time. But Paul's giving the Thessalonians a heads up to encourage them to use their time well, to be productive, to be hardworking, and not being a bludger. So to sum it all up, Paul's encouraging the Thessalonians uh, to be quiet, to be non-interfering, and to be hardworking. And in the last verse, verse 12, he gives us two reasons why we're to live this way. Uh, Please read verse 12 with me. He says this. So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Firstly, uh, doing our work God's way will turn the heads of those who don't know Jesus and turn their heads in a good way. Uh, By how we live and how we work, well, it shouldn't draw criticism from non-Christians, but rather it should attract them to what life is like if you trust in Jesus. But secondly, doing our work God's way will mean that we're not taking advantage of the generosity of others, especially when the situation doesn't call for it. Because when you take advantage of your brother or sister, when you don't need it, you're actually depriving someone else who actually needs their support. So as we approach our work in a way that's quiet, non-interfering and hard-working, well, it actually enables us to be a blessing to others. And when we do our work in this way, well, it will actually make us stand out as different in our world as we live a life that pleases Christ. God's Word tonight has been saying some really big, important things to us of how the Gospel shapes our lives, of of how a Gospel love for others will affect everything from our sexuality to how we do our work. And being shaped by the Gospel in this way, it's going to cut across our culture in how they do things. As we live lives that are sanctified, lives that are holy, lives that are different. But you know, our culture, the way the culture is going that's around us, there are people hurting all over. But we have something distinctive to offer. And it's a life that's worth living. It's a life that works best in this world. And it's a life where everyone is better off. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that by your amazing love for us, you sent the Lord Jesus to die for us, so that you could save us from the penalty of our sins, so that we can now be forgiven and be made right with you. Heavenly Father, I pray for those, those of us who have been hurt profoundly by sin and the sin of others, and we pray that you will bring about great healing and strength during this time. 
Heavenly Father, I pray for those of us who have issues that we're still dealing with. I pray that you will shower us with your love and grace that comes by repentance. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll keep changing all of us by your gospel. That we'll be people who live life your way in all aspects of our lives. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.